A couple weeks ago, my son Aaron, who is in the army, he and I went up to visit my mom and my brothers up in New York and central New York outside of Syracuse farmland. When we got there on a Monday, and when evening came, now this is this was so enjoyable. Aaron and I talked about this a lot. When evening came, it was dark. We hopped on the four-wheelers, and we headed up in the hills. And we went way up in the hills, hill after hill after hill, up into the top where there is a gas pipeline and fields and mud bogs. I mean, it was amazing what we had to go through. We rode through a herd of cows, had to go through two farmer's gates. I was so nervous the cows were going to get out. We got all the way up to the pipeline, and I've been up there a bunch, but this time more than ever before, the grass was so high and it's so dark that the lights of the four-wheelers couldn't shine because the grass obstructed the illumination. So we're really riding blind, except my son brought a high-powered flashlight with him. And so what we did was every minute, minute and a half, we stopped because we're looking for a trailhead. The trailhead is what's going to get us back down off the hill so that we could get back home. And we had to find that because it's the only way down that side of that mountain. So we would stop and he would shine his light along the woods. We're looking for the beginning of that path, that opening, that trailhead. And we finally found it and began the descent back down. It was so dark. The sky was so filled with stars. It was a worship moment as we turned off the four-wheelers and just looked up at God's handiwork. But to get from the pipeline back down to my mom's, we had to find that trailhead. Now that's really the same approach that we're going to take in this message. We're going to find the trailhead because without it, we're not going to be able to find our way through this passage. In fact, many don't find the trailhead and they misconstrue this passage. The trailhead, the way to start clearly and rightfully on the path of interpreting Matthew chapter 6 verses, or Matthew chapter 7 rather, verses 7 through 11. The trailhead is actually verse 12. Now look at your Bibles for a moment, and you'll see why people miss this. They typically, and even those who divided the Bible, that's not inspired by God, but those who divided the Bible, and almost all of them, lump verse 12 with verses 13 and 14, and they put a little heading between verses 11 and 12 called the golden rule. This is massively misleading. Verse 12 goes with verses 7 through 11. And verse 12 is actually the trailhead. Look at the very first word of verse 12, and you'll understand what I mean. So, functions like therefore. It's the bridge. It's the connecting word. And here's what it says. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So verse 12 is the trailhead. It's how we're going to decipher, interpret, understand verses 7 through 11. It's famously called the golden rule. And it really provides the answer to the question that is on your outline for point number one. Here's the question. Why is Jesus talking about prayer again? 
Did he not get everything out the first time? See, he earlier, now look at your Bibles. You, you've got to be in the Bible. You have to be a student of God's Word. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Just flip back a page if you need to. Verses 5 through 15. He earlier taught his disciples how to pray. Now listen, this is why this is so misleading. You've got to answer the question, why is the word so at the beginning of verse 12, and why is he talking about prayer again? Look at what he said in, in chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. He's laid out for us, we already looked at it, the character of our Heavenly Father who provides for us. So when we go through life, don't let anxiety dominate you because your God is a Heavenly Father. He cares for the lilies of the field. He clothes them. He cares and feeds the birds of the air. If he will do that for the lilies and do that for the birds, what will he do for his children? This is how you kill anxiety. It points you vertically back to God. So in both of those passages, the Lord's Prayer, verses 5 through 15, verses 25 through 30, both of chapter 6, Jesus already brought out prayer. He brought out trust. He brought out how to approach our Heavenly Father. And in both of them, he brings out this theme that threads its way through the entire sermon. Now listen, look at me for just a moment. I'm going to tell you that theme. He has a little scarlet thread, golden thread. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. It binds the entire sermon together, and it's called the kingdom of God. That's why this sermon series is called the king and his kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we pray. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we are to pray for God's kingdom to come. Now you might be wondering, what, what does that mean? I'm going to give you these super short synopsis. God's kingdom is where his rule and his reign are reflected on earth. So it really is where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And he is building his kingdom. This kingdom is glorious. And wherever you see the kingdom of God, you see God's sovereign rule and God's sovereign reign bringing out his perfect will. Now I'm going to give you some examples. You ready? Because right now this kind of seems like an academic sermon. Trust me, we are going to get so practical in this. We're going to learn how to defeat judgmentalism. But you've got to get this. What's the kingdom of God look like when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, his kingdom is where sin does not rule. Where evil does not have its way. His kingdom is where love and peace reigns. Where it kills racism. It kills the ability and the desire to be putting people in slavery, where there is no violence, no fighting, no discord. So as God's kingdom is reigning, here's the evident beauty of it. His kingdom lives in, in our hearts. His rule 
and his reign making us increasingly look and act like Jesus. If God's kingdom is reigning in your marriage, then what there will be in your marriage is more peace, less conflict, more understanding and less selfishness, more ability to bring glory to God and less self-centeredness. This is what it looks like when God's kingdom is reigning. Is his, re- is his kingdom reigning in your families, be- with your children? Is it reigning in our church? Or let's check our neighborhoods where you bring God's kingdom to bear <clears throat> because where God's children are, his kingdom comes. And so when Christians gather into a city, blessed is a city because of the righteous in it. Prosperous is a city because of the righteous. Because the righteous are bringing the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God is coming, then God's rule and reign is in force. The less we worry about things... Now listen, I'm speaking to a lot of us right now. The less we have anxiety which I've told you is fear of the future. It's really based on lack of faith in your sovereign heavenly Father. But the less that we worry about things, the more we can invest in the kingdom, the more we can trust our heavenly Father, the more we seek and pursue God's kingdom. All right, so ready? The academic, this is really important. Some of y'all are going to probably have to go back and listen to this again, which I really encourage you to do. Let me just sum up what I've told you. There is a thread that goes to this sermon, and we can lose sight of it. And when you do, the entire sermon loses its force. The thread is really, at the macro level, it's a discipleship training course. But it's a discipleship training course because God is taking his people, putting them at work in the, in the fields of this world, in your schools, your classrooms, your families, your neighborhoods, so that the kingdom of God can bear out its power. And where God's kingdom is, his rule and his reign are, and the less sin The less atrocities, the less hold the evil has, the more glorious love is shared, the more faith in God is reflected. And that thread is woven throughout your life, the kingdom of God. So why does Jesus return to the subject of prayer again? If it's not to teach us how to pray... If it's not to remind us to trust that our Heavenly Father cares for us, why are we back to prayer? Now, you do know this is a valid question, right? Because he's already talked about prayer in, in a lot of detail in the Lord's Prayer. He's already taught it to us. And he's already given us the ingredients. I'm reminding you again what I just said five minutes ago. He's given us the ingredients to how to trust our Father, overcome anxiety, and seek and pursue the kingdom of God. So why is he back to prayer again? Now I'm going to tell you what the wealth and the prosperity and the health theologians are going to tell you. And that's how they interpret verses 7 through 11. This is all about praying for the things that you want. And if you pray it right and in the right cadence and in the right Uh, passion, God will give it to you. That's how they interpret this. I'm going to give you a little bit, actually very radically different understanding of this. 
And you will not understand this if you don't go back to verses 1 through 6. Now, if you weren't here last week and you didn't listen to this message that I gave last week, I'm going to ask you to do that because it's really important, critically important that you understand where we're going today. The answer for why we ask, seek, and knock is found in verses 1 through 6. You know, sometimes last week when the scriptures gives us a glimpse of our hearts. Now listen, can you understand this? It's not a pretty sight. Can you nod your head to me? Do you understand what I'm saying? That when somebody's preaching, sometimes it opens up your heart and what God shows you is disgusting to you. You can actually leave church pretty bothered. You can leave church discouraged. Right preaching won't leave you there. It'll remind you of the gospel. It'll remind you of the one who can change that. But last week, I had a lot of people, and I myself experienced, man, when God takes that x-ray of your heart with the word of God, and he puts it up on that backlit wall, I don't look that good. I could be judgmental. I could be hypercritical. And you might have discovered last week that you're actually more judgmental than you thought you were. You might admittedly, now here's what we discovered, you might admittedly crave the throne. Every hypercritical person loves the throne. And it's rightfully inhabited by God. We ask him, move over or get off. It's my turn to pound the gavel. And we like the feel of the judge's robes. And that gavel seems to somehow become custom fit for our palm. And when we whack it on that round little knocker on our judge's table, it puts out a pleasant thwack. It feels really good sometimes. It's a very toxic power to be critical of other people. You play the role of God. It's not your role and it's not mine. You see, up on that seat, just think about it for a moment. It's true for every judge. You have to look down to see the person you're judging. So you put yourself up, I put myself up, and I've always put that person down. That's the only way it works. You never do it the other way. Listen, if you see somebody in better light than yourself, you honor them. You lift them up. But when you see somebody in worse light than yourself, then you tend, and I do, to judge them, to criticize them, to bring a scathing verdict of guilt. But I want you to listen very, very carefully. You ready? This is absolutely the beginning. This is the trailhead, and we're going to get really moving on this sermon. In that very moment of judging somebody, verse 12 is absolutely gone out of our hearts. Now look at verse 12 for a moment, and you'll understand what I mean. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's absolutely missing. When we're judging, verse 12 is gone. And verse 12 is the summation of the entire law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot do that as a hypercritical people. Love, which should be the badge of the, of the disciples of God, is absolutely missing. 
and we have become, this is atrocious, we've become tasteless salt, chapter 5, we've become covered light, chapter 5, and those all around us are left in joyless darkness where the rule and the reign of God is not evidencing. Now what I just did for you, now you ready? Now get this and then we're going to get rolling. This is my last little bit of statements before we get moving. What I just did was I did a mashup of verses 1 through 6 and verse 12. I collided them and I put them together. The solution is verses 7 through 11. How do you go from the person of verses 1 through 6 to the person of verse 12? The way you get there is verses 7 through 11. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. How the people in the kingdom of God can overcome a judgmental heart and discern rightly when to present the gospel and when to refrain so that we can love others the way we want them to love us. How do we do that? Well, verse, or, uh, point number two, and here we go. How can prayer set our hearts free to love instead of judge? Well, look at what Jesus says, verse 7. And here we are in our text. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now listen, you might have come out of a, uh, of a church climate and context which preached this passage all the time. You've got something you want from God. Here's how you get it. Listen, remove that from your thinking. This has absolutely nothing to do with getting things from God. Nothing. Objects or products of this world is not in view of that verse. He's already told us, listen, don't worry about the things that you need. need. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What are things? It's everything you need to be able to live life in a way where you can do what God tells you to do. So this is not a prayer to get things from God or to move God to give you things. In fact, I'm going to dig into it just a little bit. You ready? There's three verbs here. Very simple, but I would encourage you, perhaps, underline them in your Bible. Put a little note in the margin, and I'll tell you what to write in a moment. Here's the three verbs, ask, seek, and knock. Here's the little note that I would encourage you to put in the margin. They're all present tense commands. It's really important that you don't lose any of those words. Present tense must go with commands. These are Greek imperatives. So these are commands from God that are ongoing. Not just once and you're done. Therefore, God, I asked. God, I seeked you for it. I sought you for it. I knocked for it. I'm done. I did it once. It's not what it means. Present tense commands. Meaning to keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Now listen, look at me for a second. I've got to put a little bit of a careful balance in this. God is not someone that you and I have to convince to act. You don't have to pester God enough until he shuts you up, shut, where you shut him up by just doing it. Or rather, he shuts you up by just giving it to you. He doesn't do that. You never have to keep knocking on the throne room of God, thinking you're going to wear him down. Finally, I'll just give it to you. 
I'm tired of you pastoring me. That's never going to be God. God will never say that. And he's not confused. He's not in heaven. He's not trying to decide like you and I do when our children ask us for something. We take some time, some time and try to decide wisely whether to get it for them. God's not confused. He's not ambivalent. He's not waiting to try to make a good decision. And then all of a sudden, you deliver him a knockout convincing argument, and it just opens up the storehouses of heaven. That's not what works. That's not what's in view. That's nowhere in Scripture what I just explained. Ask, seek, knock, It's all about movement. And we're going to look at each one of them for a moment. Look at the first one. It's petition. Ask, and it will be given to you. Now listen, keep this in mind. What we're learning is how do you overcome a judgmental, hypercritical heart? How do you gain discernment to know if you should give the gospel, the good news, to someone who's hostile to it? Or if you should refrain? Well, how do you do that? The first one is you've got to ask God. The the goal is, verse 12, instead of judgmentalism, you love. Instead of holding back or going up higher and pounding a gavel and, and condemning people, you do unto others the way you want others to do unto you. That's the goal. How you get there is, verse 7, you've got to ask. It's an invitation to prayer. Now, I couldn't be any clearer. Now, we got unplugged over here, so if somebody wants to come up and plug that back in, the light up here. I could not be any more clear. It's an invitation to prayer. Okay? Now, you ready? This is so often missed. I want you to hear this. This is really, really important. There is an incredible world behind the word ask. Now, everybody look at me, okay? This is so important. If you miss this one, you're not going to get the whole beginning of this movement. The world behind the word ask is humility. Did you hear that? The world behind the word ask is humility. When we have to ask, we have to humble ourselves. And that's the goal of this prayer. The beginning of the movement is to be in a position where we can no longer be on the throne. When we're judgmental, when we're hypercritical, we're up on the throne. We want power. It is toxic. It feels good to hit the gavel. It feels good to be higher and better than somebody else. Listen, the whole trajectory, the whole movement behind the word ask is you got to get off the throne. You can't ask sitting on the throne thinking you're a peer with God. So Jesus is really saying, listen, put yourself in a position where you're dependent on God again. And that requires you to voluntarily get off that throne. Judgmental, hypercritical people love the high position of the platform. They love the power that comes with looking at someone and declaring, you do not meet my standard guilty. But to ask God, often and repeatedly, present tense commands, is to admit and declare, there is only one judge and I am not him. I have no right To judge anybody, not with a judgmental, critical heart. It's a force for humility. It's a deep sense of chapter 5, verse 2, being poor in spirit. Now think on this just a little bit more with me, if you would. 
how often the antithesis, the opposite of humility, which is pride, courses through our spiritual veins. Now listen, this is what pride does. Pride makes an appearance in, in potentially every area of our lives. There's not like you walk... Let me put it this way. This is a terrible way to explain it, but maybe it's the best I could do at this moment. If you took an aerosol can... I did this, by the way, when I was a youth pastor. I thought, you know what? The best worship is the worship that engages all of your senses. So in the, uh, parson, or in the sanctuary up at our other campus, in the middle of worship... I got this super divinely inspired, I don't think it was, idea to go in the bathroom and get the, you know, the stuff you spray when the bathroom doesn't smell really good, right? And I ran up and down the, the aisles of the sanctuary spraying this, thinking that, well, they used incense in the Old Testament, they used incense in the temple, it was to be reflective of the prayers of God's people often. Well, this is a brilliant idea, except people were coughing and leaving the sanctuary. What I learned is this, you can't spray an aerosol in a room thinking it's going to compartmentalize in that little bit of the room. It's going to go everywhere, aerosol. Well, it's the same thing with pride. Pride doesn't just locate in one part of your life. It's, it's like an aerosol spray. It goes everywhere in your life. So when we struggle with pride, it's not just like we think it is. Well, it's just in this one little area or these two little areas. Are you kidding me? It's at the heart, and it permeates everything in us. Our thinking, our emotions, our attitudes... Pride is a lethal aerosol, and it's everywhere in our lives. And the job of the gospel is to kill it. There is a constant, unrelenting, ongoing war that the Christian must have with pride. And the difficulty of pride is that it's self-deceiving. Now listen, you might not even know that you're struggling with pride. This is why you must have wise, godly friends and family members that will actually tell you when they see pride. And there are people who actually, I've had this, I, hope, I might have done this, I probably have. There are people who declare often unwittingly that they know they're prideful. Now listen, if you've ever done that, at least self-diagnose for a moment, or if somebody doesn't, here's how you need to counsel them. Anytime someone says they know they're prideful, now listen, without deep sorrow and repentance, they have become prideful even of their pride. If you recognize pride, the only right response is sorrow, godly sorrow that will move you to repentance. Otherwise, if you have a benign attitude, well, we all struggle with pride. Yeah, I know I'm prideful. I'll deal with it one day. You have worldly sorrow, and there is no evidence of the gospel doing its work. See, Jesus begins the war on a judgmental heart, a judgmental hypercritical attitude, by putting us in the position of humility. Ask God for wisdom and help, and it will be given to you. By the way, this is one request that I guarantee you God will answer. But he'll answer it in his time and in his way. James says this, If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But you've got to ask in faith. 
You've got to ask with a heart that's vertically aligned. You've got to ask knowing that it can only come from God. You cannot fabricate this. This is not a world's commodity. This is not something that someone can give to you. This is a gift from God alone. Ask God. If you want to get over your judgmental heart, you want your heart to be changed by the gospel, Jesus says, get to God, get to your heavenly Father, and begin asking over and over. It will put you in a position of humility, and it will begin the war on pride which is the reinforcing concrete of a judgmental, hypercritical heart. The context of verses 7 through 11 is not physical healing. It's not praying for a restored marriage. It's not praying for a bigger house. It's not praying that hurricanes are averted. All of that is good praying, maybe all but one, unless you want to use a bigger house for more ministry. But listen, this is not what's in view in these verses. It is asking God to overcome in you judgmentalism and to grant discernment so that you can share the gospel so that you can do unto others what you would have others do unto you. Point number two, though, or the second one, pursue. Seek and you will find. And these are all three P words. The first one was petition, ask. The second one is pursue. I told you it was movement. Asking, you're stationary, you're at the base of the throne, now you're pursuing. Seek, and you will find. And you might be at this point a little disappointed. Now, let me ask you if you are, actually. Because most Christians, the majority of Christians, have read verses 7 through 11 very differently than the way that I'm teaching it today. And I would imagine there might be some that are a bit disappointed to learn that this prayer is not really about receiving from God the things that you really want in this world. It's not about asking that God would move in your body to overcome a disease. Let me remind you, Christian, verse 32 of chapter 6. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Ask him for them, but do not anxiously keep coming back. You've got to leave it with God so that you can seek and pursue his kingdom. Verse 33, all these things will be added to you. No, this teaching on prayer is about asking God to free our hearts to love and to treat others as we want them to treat us. So he began with a posture of humility. Now he moves to the posture of pursuit. Seek. Pursue. You know what it is? Pastor Matthew did an excellent job preaching from chapter 5, verse 6. It's to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what this means. It means you're pursuing God with a famished soul that will dehydrate if you don't reach him. That he alone has what can slake your spiritual thirst. That he alone can overcome this pride that's in your heart. And it necessarily follows humility because we will not ever pursue and seek God's will and his help in changing us to love and not judge if we believe we're just fine the way we are or if we've got the the ability within ourselves to do better. Listen, this is not self-help. The gospel is not about self-help. It's about divine strength of transformation. And out of the working of God, do everything to work out your your salvation with fear and trembling. 
The pursuit of prayer is the overarching desire and the need. Here it is. I'm going to sum it all up right here. It's the overarching desire and the need to know your heavenly Father more. That you would get closer. That you would reflexively move to Him when something happens in your day. Instead of 30 minutes later, you know, I should have taken that to the Lord. It's when that person asks you for advice, your immediate response is an internal dialogue of prayer. God, I don't have the wisdom that this person needs. You do. I'm asking you to give it to me so that I could give it to them. It is that kind of pursuit of God. It is, I can't stand my life if we're not going to move closer. Now, you might have been in an earthly relationship where you felt that. That needs to turn vertically. There needs to be a holy discontent of where you are now with God. That continually gets bigger, continually is stoked to a higher flame. It is pursuing God. You are humbly off the throne. You are pursuing God. God, I cannot change this heart. You can. I'm coming your way. I'm going to come your way in prayer. I'm going to come your way in the Word of God. See, prayer is a declaration of dependence. So you ask. And prayer is a movement of of pursuit, so you seek God. And as we're going to see in a minute, when we see the love and the mercy of God, it is at once disturbing, honestly, to see how it lacks in ourselves. And it's motivating, on the other hand, to plead to God, help me have that love, help me to have that mercy, help me to give to other people what you so lavish on me. You see, this is the undoing of the judgmental, hypercritical heart. You're asking God, you're pursuing Him, He's pouring it into your life, and all of a sudden, your, your desire is, I want to act towards my wife, towards my spouse, towards my parents, my children, my neighbors, my irritating co-workers. I'm going to act towards them the way that God does me. God, I need your help for this. Give it to me. Pour it into my heart. Let it flow to other people. Romans 5. And this is what we see in the third imperative. Look at the third one. Persist. We've seen petition. We've seen pursuit. And now we see persist. Knock, Jesus says, and it will be open to you. Now listen, this, I'm going to remind you in a little bit more graphic way. Ready? Look at me. This is not what Jesus is teaching. All right, Lord, I asked. It's over and over, over and over. You ask, you pursue, you seek, you knock. It is a persistence. Do you recognize that you lack the wisdom to know how and when to share the good news of Jesus? Do you hate your lack of love? Are you amazed in a bad way for the lack of mercy that you have to people who are difficult? To be honest, for me and for most I know, there is not the evidence that we're really pursuing Christ in our lives oftentimes. If that evidence was there, we will plead, we will knock, we will implore our Heavenly Father, Father, change my heart. Only you can do this. I cannot go on like this. It's the way that you display your love with me. I want to display your love to others. Give me your wisdom to know when to give, when to abstain from talking about the gospel. Listen, go back to verse 6. 
because we're all in context here. Don't throw your pearls before swine. If you've got a hostile unbeliever that you've tried to share Christ with and they turn on you and they disparage and they slander you and they disparage the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a point where you withdraw. There is a point where you withhold in prayer waiting for God to tell you to say it again, but let let God work. Let those coals go back on their own heads. See, this prayer that Jesus is teaching us is a prayer for transformation. It is the disciple, often in prayer, who is most made to be like Christ. Did you hear that? Listen, if you hunger to be like Jesus, the aim of this sermon, of the mount, on the mount, the aim of Jesus' sermon, then remember this, what I just said. This, it is the disciple, often in prayer, who is made most to be like Christ. For everyone who asks receives, verse 8, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. By the way, look at your Bibles for a second. Look at this passage 7 through 11. And just count for a moment how many times you see the word ask. Do you know what he's communicating to us? Jesus is saying to you, child of God, brother and sister of Christ, you've got an open invitation to go to God, but you've got to go in humility. This is the nature of the word ask. And I want you, he says, to seek, believing that he alone has the power to change your heart. Pursue him, knock, pursue him in a relationship, implore him, that's knocking, implore him to do what only he can do, transform you to love the way he loves you, But asking, seeking, knocking, well, they could be really wonderful or they could be really awful. You know what will determine the two? It depends entirely on who is on the other side of that door. I mean, just take that for an earthly example. You're at home and somebody knocks. That could be your best friend from high school 20 years ago. For a surprise visit and to reconnect or that could be someone who wants to come in and steal everything in your home asking seeking and knocking when you know who your heavenly father is and you understand his character you know who's on the other side of the door it will motivate you to knock it will motivate you to seek it will motivate you to ask you know your heavenly father wants to give you All of what will bring you to transformation of Christ. You know your heavenly father is not hiding from you. You know he's not doing what fathers often do to their little children. As they're running along with their children who's trying to catch him just out of reach. God does not do that. He will let you find him. You will catch him. He wants to be caught. And when you knock on that door, if you know your heavenly father, you know he cannot wait to open that door and invite you in and do the work in your heart to help you love. So you can pray in confidence. But just how exactly, point number three and final point, how should we be towards other people? How should we be towards others? When you ask, seek, and knock in prayer, 
Know that the answer that God gives you will be for your highest good. Now stop for just a moment. Because the reality is, this is not always the way that we all think. Do you truly believe that everything that God gives you in life is for your highest good? That it truly is a perfect gift? That when your health begins to plummet, even that is a gift from God. And when you lose your job, that God has goodness reflected in that. Do you truly believe that God always gives you his best gifts for your highest good? And this is how we are to love others, for their highest good. It might not be your highest good for a wealthy person. Listen, we don't like to hear this, but it might not be for your highest good if someone were to give you $10,000 to get you out of debt. Because unless your heart is changed, you may very well get right back in it. That might not be a good gift. It may not be a good gift to give your young child permission to go on a vacation with a family because perhaps that family has values that are in contradiction to Christ. See, God will never give us anything except that which is for our highest good. James says this, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now listen, this is what you pound into your faith to anchor it when life doesn't go well. When the storms are hitting, you've got to remember, God is on display. His goodness is on display for you. So verse 9, Jesus asked two rhetorical questions. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And then he gives his point for these two examples in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So you're asking, you're pursuing, you're knocking, and all the while your, your theology, your view, the mind, your belief, the, your attitude towards God is one that he is beautiful to you, one that he is a good father in heaven, one that he gives everything that is for your highest good. There is nothing that comes from the hand of God that will be anything but for your highest good. And all of that motivates you to move. Get off the throne and ask. Put in, put in a position of humility. Pursue God by seeking him. Implore him by knocking. He will answer that question and transformation will be coming to your hearts. See, a serpent was considered unclean. And Jews were banned from eating them in his, first, his second example. So again, the point is our Heavenly Father's gifts are never going to lead to temptation. They're never going to lead to defile us in any way. Proverbs says this, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. You win the lottery, 9 out of 10, probably higher statistic, your life is ruined. But when the Lord blesses, he adds no sorrow with it. Well, our Heavenly Father will never deceive us. That was all what the Greek gods did. One goddess asked if Zeus would grant her lover immortal life, he was a human. 
So this story goes in the Greek pantheon of stories and tales. Zeus gave him eternal life, immortal life, but the man perpetually aged forever. He never died, but he got older and older every single day. Well, this is not God. He's not a trickster. He's not a Loki. When God gives and a child's asking for bread, he's not going to pull a stone out and laugh at you. God cannot do that. He is a perfect father. And in the way that God responds with good gifts for our highest good, verse 12, we should respond to others for their highest good. Judgmental, hypercritical attitudes are replaced with hearts that are full of mercy and love and kindness. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. By the way, you want a little fun fact? This is kind of cool. I'll give you four examples. That saying had been around for a long time before Jesus spoke this in verse 12. Except it was always, I'll give you four examples, always in the negative. Rabbi Hillel, here's what he said, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. Confucius taught what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. The Greek philosopher Epictetus, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict on others. I took the fourth one out. It was Epicurus. It was another negative example. Jesus is the first to turn this positive. Do you know why? It's actually easier to stop being critical of someone than to start showing love to them. The easy way out is to stop your internal dialogue of judgmentalism. The harder way is to replace it by moving to the person that you were just judging and showing mercy and love and kindness to them. You see, Jesus doesn't let the easy way rule. He says, listen, you do unto others. Look at it again with me. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. He's the first to put it in the positive. Now, I will tell you two things about this passage as we close. Are you ready? This is so important. These two things have the power to build your faith. I already told you, told you the first one. I'm going to re- remind you of it. Six times Jesus uses the word ask. That invitation is there, Christian. You've got to take advantage of it. It has the power to get you off the throne. But also, six times, here's the second one, he promises the petition will be answered. Now just look through it. It will be given. You will find. The door will be opened. Receives, finds, opened. Six times Jesus promises. If you ask for God to change your heart, he's going to do it. He's going to work. He's going to transform your life so that you can live, verse 12, which is why it begins with the word so. John Brodus, as I begin to close, said, One may be a truly industrious man, hardworking man, and yet poor in temporal things, but one cannot truly be a praying man and yet poor in spiritual things. So I'm going to actually do something as we close by way of a question to get you in utter transparency before the Lord. Now, you ready? Are you a pauper 
Are you a poor person? Are you poverty-stricken in spiritual things? Now, the way you answer that question is this. Is there a lack of love in your life for people who are difficult? I mean, come on. Anybody can love those who love them. But is there a lack of love in you towards people who are difficult? Is there a motivation in you to share the good news of the gospel with people who are going to hell? Is there a kindness in you, even towards those who are not anything like kind to you? Is there a patience with you, a long-suffering, a bearing up under something for a long time, even when the pressure just mounts and mounts and mounts, trial after trial after trial, yet you have a patience that can endure it and astound the world? See, I could go on over and over and over from Scripture. The point is this. Do you have an abundance of spiritual commodities living in your heart? And if the answer is no, verses 7 through 11 is your solution. You ask, and you seek, and you knock, and you trust six times Jesus promises you're going to get it because this is what I've been waiting to do in you. I want to transform you to be like me and set you loose upon a needy world. That's the point of this prayer. God is ready and willing to pour out spiritual blessings so that we can love and do to others as he loves and does to us. Amen.